Hello, my friends. This is Glenda Taylor. In this little podcast, I would like to talk to you about something I've been thinking about lately. I've been thinking about wildness. Not wilderness, but wildness. Things not tamed or or domesticated. Things that act as they choose for good or ill. That kind of wildness is akin to instinct. It's ancient, rooted in ways of being that have survived all attempts at control or repression all down through the ages. One thinks of ancient Celtic tribal chiefs or of wild wolves, for example. A person might imagine that wildness would have been civilized out of us, out of existence long ago, but most of us at times still feel a strong call of the wild. Some people express concern that we've lost touch with so much of the wild things of this earth and fear that wildness and wilderness is is endangered. Perhaps... <laughs> For some people, wildness is endangering instead of endangered, for wildness is always a threat to orderliness and regulations and sensibility and safety. I looked up the word wildness in my computer's thesaurus, and it gave me a list of words. Almost all of them were negative. Quote, roughness, harshness, rowdiness, unruliness, violence, lack of control, craziness, madness, foolishness, passion, forcefulness, waywardness, recklessness, curiosity, cruelty, and on and on. That is wildness as defined by our modern, civilized computer mentality. But what is it about wildness, I wonder, that so draws us supposedly rational humans as we continually long secretly for some lost something, something wild and free, even as we fear or evade it? In us humans, wildness is no doubt embedded in a part of the brain that our cerebral cortex is always trying to manage, mostly unsuccessfully. I've been thinking about this lately because here at our Springs Retreat Center from early January until a few days ago here in March, we've been visited by a stray husky dog, hungry, abandoned by his owners, a beautiful gray and white animal that looks and acts so much like a wolf and who, on the first night of his arrival, gave a long wailing howl so distinctly like a wolf's call for his family that suddenly it was clear that wildness itself was at our door and wildness has stayed there revealing itself to me day by day in more and varied aspects in this animal. I got online and learned that huskies are one of two or three breeds of dogs that are closest genetically to wild wolves. This husky proved it. It was easy to see the wildness in this beautiful wolf-looking and acting creature that showed up at our door. 
having been no doubt dropped off on the dirt road here in the National Forest by someone who could no longer deal with this animal's wildness, for he was indeed a handful. We contemporary humans have an interesting ambivalence toward wildness. We have a love-fear-hate relationship with it, I think. Probably this ambivalence plays out daily within our very brains. A sort of war goes on between the different parts of our psyches, I guess. Parts that represent and demand different things. Between, on the one hand, what is beautifully free, emotionally and physically unrestrained and unrestrainable. And on the other hand, what is sensible and secure and contained. And most of us fear the incursion of wildness into our well-ordered lives. Wolves have carried the burden of human projection of this fear for many generations. As Dennis Olson writes, quote, Humans fear what they don't understand. Red Riding Hood, Three Little Pigs, Peter and the Wolf, Crying Wolf, Wolfing Food, Wolf at the Door, Thrown to the Wolves, We're Wolves. These are examples of the wolf legacy, end quote something to be feared. I wonder if perhaps we humans secretly fear such attributes in ourselves that make us fearful, forgetting the positive attributes of the actual wolves in the wild. Early humans and wolves knew each other well. They competed for food. Both were predators. Both lived and hunted in packs, in family units. Both used complex communication and both taught hunting as survival skill to their young. Early humans must have noticed and maybe even learned from the behavior of wolves. Certainly a sense of kinship grew up with legends the world over to support a belief in the virtues of the wolf as well as his fier fierceness and his efficient killing skills and his and his willingness to befriend humans on occasion and in time of need. Wolves have impressive stamina and speed. Wolves have been known, for example, to swim up to 50 miles, and they can travel 40 miles in a day. The wolf, as Jason Mark describes it, working itself into a harmonic gait in which the back paw falls exactly where the front paw had landed, a rhythmic jog that conserves energy. Wolves use teamwork and strategy to take down their prey. They come from behind, snapping at the prey's haunches and biting at their flanks until the animal weakens or is brought down by a lunge to the throat. A wolf's jaw, I read, can slam shut with 1,200 pounds per square inch of force, enough to snap a bone. The prey is thrown to the ground to be ripped open and typically eaten alive. As one person at an animal shelter told me about the husky, the dog that showed up at our door, who again is a close descendant of wolves, she said, the prey drive is very strong in him and will not be trained out of him. But as I learned also from this husky, the prey drive is, the on is only part of the wolf's character and this dog's character. 
Wolves are also social, loyal, playful, and family-oriented. When wolf pups are weaned at five weeks, the whole pack works together to feed and care for the young pups. Wolves show a natural social generosity in their feeding patterns, just as this husky did at our house. Once our, our husky got used to being here, he, young, strong, eager, and male, nonetheless would sit aside at each mealtime to allow our old female coyote dog to eat coyote's bowl of food first before the big husky would approach his own separate food bowl. At this gracefulness, I was astounded. And then there's the intelligence. Jason Marks says, Animals, the animals, wolves, are smart as hell. A wolf that has been trapped once is all but impossible to trap again. Hmm. Wolves have a highly developed response intelligence, Jason Marks calls it. That is, they learn. For example, wolves that have been treated badly by humans have learned and have been found to defecate on human artifacts, beer cans, spent gun casings, bullet casings, as well as to defecate on poison meat as a kind of warning to other wolves. Early Indians of the American West wore wolf skins when scouting for prey, believing it would help them hunt like the great wolf. They also knew that wolves could understand what humans were communicating and respond, would even warn them about enemies nearby. Obviously, the spiritual relationship between people and wolves was once close. Some regarded the wolf as, as they say, as Native Americans say, as brother, teacher, and spirit guide. Dennis Olson has written, quote, Wolves taught humans about cooperation and the value of an extended family. They taught us about protectiveness and about fidelity to the tribe. They taught us how the social system in a tribe functions smoothly and with the best interest of everyone in mind. We watched them and learned how to howl at the moon in celebration, too. They showed us how to move through the world carefully and quietly. End quote. But European colonists who came to the New World brought domesticated livestock that immediately became prey to wild wolves. The wolf was seen by early colonists and later ones as a wanton killer. During settlement times, the rate at which wolves were killed is astounding and it never stopped. For centuries in this country, wolves have been trapped, hunted, and eventually gunned down from the air. Thousands have been poisoned by strychnine-laced meat scattered from airplanes. The 19th and 20th century campaign against wolves, which was spurred partly by ranchers and funded by state and federal governments, was really an attempt at extinction of the wolf. In 1924, a federal biologist declared, large predatory mammals destructive to livestock and game no longer have a place in our advancing civilization. <laughs> Watching this husky dog with us, the wolf-like fellow living with us, I've thought a lot about whether civilization was advancing or regressing. 
as we've lost our touch and respect for wildness. The war against wolves and the war against the Indians overlapped and were all but indistinguishable, as Jason Mark has said. At the start of an 1865 campaign against the Northern Plains tribes, a U.S. Army general told his troops that the Cheyenne and Lakota must be hunted like wolves. Why, I wonder. There are other large predators. Why is the wolf so significantly equated with wildness? I know that in ancient Celtic myth, the wolf and their more domesticated descendants, the dog, were well respected for their intelligence, loyalty, and bravery. Celtic wolfhounds symbolized hunting, healing, and interestingly to the Celts, the other world in Celtic legends. The other world, the underworld, the unknown, the wild unknowable. Here's Jason Mark again, quote, Animals are a portal into wildness. Animals are a portal into wildness with their autonomy and their native indifference to us. Wild animals force us to consider that other beings have a will of their own, a set of interests distinct from ours. This is especially true for us 21st century city slickers who have grown unaccustomed to anything beyond our kin. Just the glimpse of an animal in the wild, the flash of fur in the underbrush, a tail bounding out of sight is like an otherworldly visitation. End quote. And that otherworldly sense, that awesome if grudging respect, and that shudder of recognition that we feel, all that reminds me of the ancient Greek gods who personified wildness, Dionysos and Pan, for example. Both brought great gifts to people who honored them, but they were also portrayed as savage and instinctual and the emotional part of reality that is dangerous to the constraints of civilization. I think also of the Hindu goddess Kali and the Mesoamerican goddess Coatlicue, both of whom were portrayed both as benefactors to humans but who nonetheless wore garlands of human skulls and carried knives and axes as artifacts. They were the giver of life and the taker of life, wild indeed and beyond our control. When I gave a lecture way back, oh, way back in the 1970s, it was about Kali and Coatlicue and other dark goddesses, I opened with a recorded song by Chris Williamson, Wild Things. In it, she sings, I'm sure you love the shelter I gave so willingly, but wild, wild things can turn on you, and you've got to set them free. Set them free to live another way. It's the spirit of the wild thing that you love so much to see. But wild things can turn on you 
You've got to set them free. I saw all that clearly one day recently when I sat for a long time, spellbound, held by the unwavering gaze of those wild blue eyes of the husky who seemed to see so deeply into me and I into him that as time passed, I was I was aware of a, oh, an immense knowingness, a vast expanse of all that I did not have a name for, but that was all there, real, present, looking back at me. I know I didn't project onto that dog the feelings of connection, of understanding, of how things were between us. He... <laughs> He had made his way into the house, into my house, while I tried to find a safe home for him. I had learned that I couldn't keep him. He had killed pigs, raccoons, birds, and other creatures here, which was perhaps endurable. But then he had threatened the neighbor's chickens and cows a few miles away, and he tore the downspout off the neighbor's gutters trying to get at a baby rabbit taking shelter inside the downspout. At that point, the neighbor, as he said on the telephone to me, Now I've got a problem with your dog. I knew my neighbor would easily shoot the dog, given the right provocation, and that wild dog was bound to give him that provocation. So... I confined the dog in my house, taking him for walks on a lead, which he accepted more or less off and on, escaping Houdini-like more than once, but always coming back later, sated from some kill or chase or curiosity satisfied, and he curled up on a mat near the door and slept easily are socialized with all of us humans with incredible affection. He was loving and, and devoted to me and to those other humans who came and went here, whom he had rapidly and obviously accepted as his new pack. But eventually I had found a no-kill rescue center called the Halfway House for Hounds in Huntsville, Texas, who said, that this dog could be flown by airplane to Canada to a better place to live, more amenable to his wildness, and he would not be killed. And they sent someone for him, and so he is gone from us. But now that leaves me with my own ambivalence, my sense of loss, and, a, and an awareness of all I had gained from him and my noticing and thinking about wildness in the way that when I went for a walk with him I could see how he was on full alert at all times aware, so aware of everything and he made me that way too a real recognition so much about wildness. So I've been thinking about wildness. And to deal with my, my feelings about this dog moving on to his freedom, I, well, I wrote a poem. I guess it's a poem. I wrote something <laughs> yesterday 
which I will read to you in closing this podcast. Spirit dog, you came to us stray, as they say, dropped off by who knows whom. You came trotting into us, hungry, lost, husky puppy, looking like our idea of a wolf. And that first night, outside our door, you howled, one long, sustained, plaintive howl, exactly that of a wolf, wild, wildness itself, every bit of wildness in the world that has been separated from all that seemed natural and real, wilderness, den, territory, and kin, all there in that one long, lonely, longing howl, and it carried you straight into my heart and hers. You came to us when she was in grief, fraught with her own loss. And I was distraught with thought of being eighty, and sooner than later, whenever, leaving this world I love. And inside me for a long time, has been a similar though silent howl like yours, spirit dog. But in the few days you were ours, when I watched you leap through the woods over logs, running full out after something else alive, your prey, all of it, your prey, your territory to explore, your curiosity unlimited, taking in everything, everything, and obviously rejoicing in it, rolling in the weeds and in the stinky things, or lying upside down, all four paws in the air while you slept, any time, unalarmed, fearing no attack, underbelly, fully exposed, or playing chase with our other old dog, awakening a new aliveness in him, too, are you hiding in the rainy, wet wash again upside down, only four waving paws visible above the field of iris? All this and more, you, you romped and played through and into us until we had to, as it seems for all wild things, put you on a leash the neighbor's cows and chickens and the squealing little pig you carried in your mouth, Collie and Coatlake utterly alive in the look in your blue eyes, staring at me, who asked you no question, but felt all over again the razor's edge of reality. Yes, that, not that. So this morning, just before they take you away, to be flown to Canada, they say, where hopefully you will truly be free, I walk with you, my eyes blinded by tears, but not yours, for you stop, your eyes suddenly fixed on a squirrel stilled in a treetop, a hundred and fifty yards away, your nose twitching just slightly and my breath stills too. And when your tongue, 
long like collies, licks out to taste the urine smell left on the tall grass by some other animal who had passed that way. I am only shocked to find myself licking my lips, and I shudder to know all the ways we are alike. Is there blood on my paws? Or a fierce, uncontainable freedom still in me, too? I promise, spirit dog, I will remember your lessons. All my senses on full alert like yours. And all my joy like yours was yesterday when I caught you standing right on top of the dining room table, off limits. Right after you chewed the top off her boot, and she didn't even seem to care as it was you. And I will remember, too, the fullness I knew when over and over you came and laid your head here on my leg or my foot or nuzzled sweetly into the crook of my arms and stayed there as long as I chose to receive all that you gave of your wild self freely to all that is me, to all of me, even the part I'd forgotten to be. These lessons I will remember, spirit dog, as now for the last time I embrace you. I will embrace too in the days to come the gift and given wildness in all that is in and around me, remembering our alikeness, all one wildness. Thank you, spirit dog.